0: Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. Begin by reading verse 22, 23. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Jesus's mind at this point is is on the cross. I mean, it's always been on the cross, but it is... It's on the cross. He is he is heading to the cross and he is preparing his disciples for the fact that he is going to depart soon. And what that is going to mean for him and what it's going to mean for them. And as you can imagine, they are having a difficult time with that. If you recall back and just flip back one chapter in your Bibles, chapter 16, verse 21. This is really a pivotal marking point um, in Jesus's ministry. It says from that time in chapter 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And the third day he raised. And so and upon hearing this for the first time, what does Peter do? He's like, great, Lord, we're with you. What does he do? He, he, Peter, who is the spokesman for the disciples, he grabs Jesus, pulls him aside and says to him, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. This is not happening to you. You're not going to go through this. They aren't going to treat you that way. No way. This is not happening. And Jesus, So Jesus has to correct Peter. He has to correct Peter. He says, get thee behind me, Satan, or get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not mindful, not setting your minds on the things of God, but on the things of men. You disciples have a worldly perspective that is being influenced by the enemy. And so Peter and the gang were being influenced in their understanding about God's plan and what he was up to and about the cross by the enemy and their minds were set on, had a worldly way of thinking about things. Even though it seems like they had good intentions, it was a worldly way of thinking about things. And so Jesus had to correct them. He had to grow them in their understanding of spiritual matters. They, they had to have a spiritual understanding, a, a kingdom-mindedness about them instead of a worldly-mindedness. Anybody relate this morning? A kingdom view of the cross and not a worldly one. So verse 24 of Matthew 16, Jesus says to them, If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake would find it. What Jesus was telling uh, them is that he is going to the cross. He is... Going to fulfill his father's will, even at the expense of his own physical comfort and pleasure. There's going to be pain involved in where he's going. He is going to suffer physically. He is going to put spiritual matters above earthly matters. The will of the father above the mindset of man. And they had to understand with a similar mentality that where he was headed, they're going to be heading. They had to understand that to follow Jesus would require the same of them. In their case, all of them, minus Judas, minus John, would lose their lives. They would all die. horrendous death. Uh, If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, I encourage that. Read the first few chapters in there. It it lays out how church history says they'll die. And so they would actually face a physical cross. They would have physical suffering in their future. And Jesus is telling them, you're going to die. That's not fun. You're going to die physically as you follow the will of God. If this morning Jesus said, follow me and you're going to die physically, you're going to suffer and die physically, how many of you would go, nope? Well, this is what they were facing. And obviously there's a spiritual aspect to this, which applies to all of us, right? Which we're going to talk about, but... Every day, they had to do three things. Jesus was warning them, I'm headed to the cross. And Peter says, no, you're not. And Peter says, yes, I am. And if you're following me, so are you. You have to do three things. So he continues in verse 24 of Matthew 16. And I know I'm re-preaching stuff, but this is important. You have to do three things. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and you have to follow me. Amen. This is what a, a believer, a follower of Jesus does. There are no ways around it. This is what a believer is. You must deny yourselves. In other words, you have to put God's will above your will. And you have to take up your cross. What does that mean? It means they are actually going to Deny yourself to death. There's an element of self-death in this. You put your will to death. The things you want to go, the places you want to go, the things you want to do are subject to his will, his ways, his wants, his desires, his word over your word, over the word of men. So there's there's a taking up your cross, death to self even with the point of physical suffering. And then thirdly, we all know this, and you actually have to follow Jesus. You have to go where he's calling you. That means a life of obedience, right? You have to live it. You see, the Lord had to wake them up to all this. This isn't the way they were thinking. This wasn't their mindset. He had to wake them up spiritually in these terms. Jesus had to repeat to them, as he does to us, that in losing your life, that in that is denying yourself, picking up your your cross and following Jesus, you actually find life. In what terrifies us, we actually find life. That's pretty wild. But if we hold on to our lives, you actually lose it in the end, Jesus says. This is the default mindset of the world. It's fixed upon the things of men. It's fixed upon self. Now, we might kind of soft pedal that, but God just gives us two two paradigms. You're either following me or you're following yourself. Either worldly or you're godly. Either spiritual or you're fleshly. He makes it really simple for us. And he's just, the, the default is we're in a selfish direction. We're in a worldly direction. Our mind is not set on the things of God. And that is because to follow Jesus is to lose your life and to find him as real life. That's what marks someone who has eternal life. If you want to know what a believer is, it's someone who follows Jesus. Well, what does that mean? You deny yourself, you pick up your cross, and you follow him. How does that happen? Through faith. Through faith. That's what faith is. <laughs> trusting Jesus Christ and, and his life in you. The life he lived before the Father is lived through us by the power of the Spirit, trusting him. and We live in obedience to the Lord. That's what a Christian is. A good tree bears good fruit. So a person who is, is someone who doesn't have life is someone who doesn't follow Jesus. They don't pick up their cross. They don't deny themselves. They don't follow Jesus. That's just not their life. And that can happen to people who go to church. That can happen to religious people, like the Jews. So, Jesus must go to the cross. And his heart is set on loving and obeying his father. That's where his mind is. I'm going to obey you, father. I'm going to love you. Love and obedience are are, are two Synonymous words. I mean, to love God is to obey him. And so the Lord had, us, had, had his heart set on the glory of the Father, I'm going to love you and obey you to death. Whatever that is. And Jesus says, you want to follow me? I'm following the Father. And we're headed towards the cross. There's going to be suffering. But he also knows that on the third day, he will rise again so Jesus is preparing his, his followers for this mindset. He comes back around to it in the verses we just read uh, in verse 22 and 23 here. And their response to it again when Jesus, first time they said, no, that's not happening. This time, what, what, are they, what does it say they experience? Great distress. How many of you have a different translation? Says something different. Great grief. It's also translated exceeding sorrow. Distress, sorrow, just a brokenness of soul. Exceedingly, great, overwhelming is the idea. Those two words in Greek, they're trying to pull them into English. First word, greatly or deeply, exceedingly. Secondly, distressed, which means grieved or sorrowful. Exceedingly sorrowful, that's how they are responding to the cross, When they heard that Jesus was going to the cross and that they they had to follow him as well, their response was exceeding sorrow, great distress within their life. They were distressed over Jesus dying. They didn't want that to happen. Who wants that to happen? No one wants anybody you love and you're following to die. That's not the plan. They were distressed over that. And I'm sure they were deeply sorrowful about the impact that would have upon them their whole lives. They'd given up everything to follow the Lord. What are we doing here? What's going to happen to us? I'm sure these things were going through their mind, what that might mean for them practically. Listen, people, when they're faced with the reality of what the cross demands of us, will often experience sorrow and great distress. When we are presented with the cross, we are our natural human reaction to that is sorrow in great distress. Natural human response. I'm not talking about our God-given response, which we'll talk about in a minute. <laughs> but our natural human response is oh no, no way, great distress. I remember being young as God was convicting me of my sin. And I knew that yeah, I needed to turn and I needed to follow Jesus as he was pulling on my heart, come out of the world, abandon that stuff. To do that, I would have to leave friendships and relationships and lifestyles and music and choices in all these types of things that I was my life was ingrained in. Anyone else relate? There was a great distress in my heart. I would come to great loss. What my life had been built upon would be torn away from me. And because I didn't have a, a fuller understanding of the Lord, and I, I, I does this mean I'll never have a wife or kids or be able to play music anymore or enjoy life? Am I going to be in a constant prayer meeting? What's going to, you know, What's going on here? Great distress. And what about how people will think of me or how, you know, I deal with relatives. And there's just this stuff that starts to happen in your heart as you are faced with the fact that to follow him, you have to die. You lose. You give up. And this is why the church doesn't preach it often or... It's so hard when you're faced with, that's the option. You have to die. It's so much easier to preach, God is here to help you have the life that you want to have. As opposed to, you have to lose your life to have life. No one wants to hear that. Selfishly, because I was... Lost, I struggled with these things. We all do, don't we? Who wants to lose comfort and lose friendships and relationships and, you know, have to make choices in your life that that they're devastating to you? My hopes, my dreams, my life, I sign it all away. See, God brings us to the place where we become poor in spirit. This is a work of the Lord. It has to, otherwise we hold on to life. The deception that that is true life. We hold on to it with everything we've got. The spirit works within us and shows us that we are actually poor in spirit. In Revelation, ladies, you read it. It's obviously in the Old Testament as well, but... You know, you think you have X, Y, and Z. You think you're so rich, but actually you're naked, poor, wretched, and blind. Come to me and buy stuff without money. Buy stuff. And it's like, well, how can I buy it if I don't have money? It's a gift. But you must give everything away to have it. So there's great sorrow, great distress when you're actually faced with the cross. This same expression, great distress or great sorrow, was the same word used for the rich young ruler when Jesus came to him and he said, hey, man, I want to be your disciple. Well, sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me. And it says he went away exceedingly sorrowful sorrowful because he was very rich. He had exceeding sorrow in his heart because he knew what he had to give up in order to follow the Lord was everything. He had built his life upon all he had. And does the same with other people. Comes and says, let me follow you. And he says, you have to give up. You have to love me more than your family. People go away exceedingly sorrowful. But this expression is, is... is pretty powerful. Now, just to contrast that, in Matthew 26, in the garden, Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to pray with him. Will you pray with me? And it says there that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled, same phrase. He became exceedingly sorrowful and exceedingly troubled. And what we focus on is that, oh, he's scared of the cross. And I think Jesus is not scared of the cross in, in his humanity, he is, but I think he's more concerned with losing fellowship with the Father. He has never broken fellowship with the Father. Ever, 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 in the thought of bearing sin and having the wrath of the Father poured out upon him, Terrified him just as we are terrified of losing our stuff. I say, just as similarly, as we are terrified of losing those things, he was terrified, deeply sorrowed, distressed over that brokenness that would come as a result of the cross. He never wanted to lose that, but nevertheless, your will be done. Isn't that wild? the way the Lord viewed things and the way we view things, do we have that spiritual mindset that he, that breaking fellowship with him is more terrifying than anything else? That's what the spirit will do in a person. That's what a spirit will grow in the person. It's revealing. When faced with the cross, with denying self, taking up our cross and following Jesus, we we're often deeply distressed. I'm just speaking for my own. <laughs> yeah, I know you can relate. Overwhelmed by sorrow, overwhelmed, being separated of earthly stuff, Jesus was deeply distressed, overwhelmed and sorrowful over being separated from the Father because he would become sin. That's crazy. So the cross brings great distress on us all. Nevertheless, the cross must come. In the life of our Lord, it came and it comes to the life of his disciples and will come to us. It's here. There's no way around the cross. And all who would follow him in faith will experience the cross, the death of self. And this is why there's a mindset, as I say again, in so much of. I guess, evangelical Christianity is a temptation for me and everyone else that the cross be minimized because it greatly distresses people and that does not fill the church. When you are pointing out to individuals and yourself that God requires total surrender, That the entry is poor in spirit and he paid it all. And in losing your life and trusting him, you actually find life. But if I preach, God is here to help you fulfill your vision of your life. That preaches, that preaches, right? (laughs) I wanna hear about it. Tell me more. But when the Spirit actually says, I made you for me. I made you for my joy. And your life, when it's found in me, and you find yourself in me, and my will becomes your will, and you ask according to what I want, there's nothing like it. Total fulfillment. Total fulfillment, not built on self, but upon His will. And you find that you were made for that. I think that's what we want to communicate That's what the Lord communicates. But here the thing is the cross brings great distress. But for those who embrace this, grace it, embrace Jesus, who trust him, who follow him into, into death, you actually find life not only now, but there is a day coming when death will be swallowed up in victory. I love what the Lord says to comfort his disciples. So in the midst of the great distress, as he's preparing them for the great distress, he never leaves out the resurrection. He never leaves out life beyond the cross. It's always in view. It's always there. And you need to know that this morning. Whatever God calls you to sacrifice, there is life beyond it. Whenever he calls you to deny yourself and pick up your cross and follow him, whatever, whatever he calls you to leave behind, there is life beyond bigger, bolder, beautiful life beyond whatever that death is. I love what the Lord says in John 16, 20 through 22. You can look at that in your Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John 16, 20 through 22. He says, truly, I tell you, I say to you, you will weep and lament. Another promise of Jesus, underline that one. You will will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Wow, that's a contrast. You will be sorrowful, Jesus says, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Listen, while you're weeping, the world will be rejoicing. Isn't that the paradigm of Christianity right now? Seems like there's a, there's a difficulty going on as we live contrary to what the culture is doing. Well, I'll back up for a second. We'll get to that. But truly, he says, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. What he's speaking of is the immediate cross that was before him. Listen, I'm going to die. The world's going to be happy about that you're going to weep, but your weeping will turn into joy. And then Jesus gives them a, a picture, an analogy, John 16, 21. Many of these men were married and they had kids. And so this is when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of that human being being born into the world. I mean. All the men can testify of their wives seeing that. I mean, what in the world is going on there? Terror, agony, pain, sorrow. I mean, I remember I can watch Christine giving birth just in a lot of pain. And then all of a sudden, they're holding the baby in the arms. And it's like, where did that go? Gone. I mean, maybe it's there. I I, I'm I'm you, ladies, come on, you preach it. Let's go. <laughs> Jesus knows what's going on. But I mean, just joy, and that's Jesus is saying, that's what the cross is like. There's pain, and suffering, but the, right as soon as it's done, it's done. And there's joy. And he's saying, that's what it's going to be like for you immediately with me in the cross. You're going to cry. You're going to suffer. It's going to be distressing. It's going to be overwhelmingly sorrowful. I'm going to die. You're going to see me bleed out. You're going to see all these things happen to me. But I'm going to be risen on the third day and you will see me. And no one is going to take your joy. I'm gonna be right there in front of you. He's going to conquer the death. There's life beyond the cross, through the cross. And that's what Jesus says to them. The cross was looming, but the resurrection was just on the horizon. In losing your life, you actually find it. Jesus sets the example, the cross, then the crown. The writer of Hebrews speaks to us similarly, Hebrews 12, 2 through 3, as he just had spoken about all those people who had walked in faith for so long He says, look at all these great cloud of witnesses. Listen, these are the people who went before you, who suffered, endured, and went through so much, not even seeing the Lord. They went through so much, but their faith pushed them through all these trials. And in the end, he flips over to the next chapter and he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin, which clings to us so closely. Sin wants to grab us and weigh us down, all those things. Let's cast it aside and run with endurance the race to the set before us. How do we do that? Verse two, looking unto Jesus. The founder, the author, and the perfecter, or the finisher, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What caused Christ to endure and to look beyond the pain of the cross, the temporary? The joy that was set beyond him. The joy. Just like childbirth. There's joy on the other side of suffering, just like our walk with the Lord. As we pick up our cross, deny him, and follow him, there's joy. But what is the joy? The resurrection. And by the way, the resurrection isn't just an event. Who is it? It's a person, it's him. He's our joy. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who went before us and showed us how it's all going to happen. And he's the one who's going to bring us through to the end. And so as he suffered, we suffer. As he rose, we rise. You see, the disciples couldn't see beyond the cross. How many of us can't see beyond the cross? Pick up your cross, fall on the rock. But Jesus would show them the joy he wants to show you the joy the joy that causes you to endure beyond look beyond your trials look beyond the suffering look beyond the moment look unto Jesus and so we too must allow the Lord to fix our eyes upon him the joy the resurrection as believers yes we bear the cross we pick it up we deny ourselves and it hurts how many of you, uh, God's calling you to deny yourself in areas of your life that you don't want to deny? Look beyond the pain and look to Jesus. Look beyond the discomfort and look to the Lord. Let him be the joy that is set before you. Just as his joy was fulfilling the Lord, the, his Father's will and bringing him glory, so let our joy be fulfilling his will and bringing him glory. So the Lord would grow us in our perspective, just as he did with the disciples, just as Jesus fixed his eyes upon the father. So we fix our eyes upon him. So keep our eyes on Jesus. Right. And although they were greatly distressed, the Lord's going to show them joy in time. Now, real quickly, to finish off the chapter in the next 10 minutes here, verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, the tax collectors of the two drachm tax uh, went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Some of you, if you knew King James, they don't even say drachma, they just say the temple tax instead, and they'll have a little letter next to it. You go down to the bottom, and it'll say two drachma, because that's what it is in the Greek. So they just did the homework for you. But the two uh, drach- uh, drachma tax was the temple tax for the upkeep of the temple that was commanded in the law of Mona- Moses for every adult male over 20 years old. You're over 20 years old. You need to pay this tax. It's the upkeep of the temple. And it was found in Exodus 30, verses 13 and 14, Second Chronicles 24, verse 9. Uh, for those of you who are taking notes. But the tax was equivalent to a half a shekel. So that's uh, basically half of, half of uh, a Jewish shekel that worked out to be around two days' wages. That was the tax to keep up the temple. You had to pay once a year. Two days' wages. Keep up the temple. The people who are exempt from that were the priests and the musicians and all those people ministering in the actual temple grants. That doesn't make sense to tax them for something they're doing. It just, Anyways, so the question came to Peter regarding the taxes that came at that time. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Hey, does Jesus pay the tax? And... We, although we don't have it in here, you can suspect <laughs> that there's some Pharisees behind the scenes here pushing levers to try to get Jesus at fault at some point of the law. That's kind of probably happening there. So if Jesus didn't pay the temple tax, he'd be guilty of breaking the law and they would have another accusation against him and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, how come you're exempt? You know how fun that gets. And so Peter... Just answers the question in verse 25. He says, Yeah, we pay it. Yeah, he pays it. Yep. Every adult male over 20 pays this, right? That's just uh, Jesus' thing. So, I mean, that's just matter of fact. But it says in verse 25, and when he came into the house, probably Peter's house there in Capernaum, Jesus, uh, Capernaum, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? Let me ask you. Who did the kings of the earth take total tax from? Just asking you. Who pays taxes? Who's supposed to pay taxes? Yeah, everybody, right? These people just get taxed. Now, Jesus is, that's the obviously answer there. He says, from their sons or from others? Do, are, are kings taxing their own sons? Forget about our, our democracy, just kings. Do they tax their own sons? The idea is no. They don't tax their own sons. Who do they tax? Everybody else's sons. All the other daughters. That's what kings do. They take from everybody else and they're taken care of, right? That's the idea there. They tax from other people. And so Jesus says, you know what Peter says, from others. And Jesus said to them, then guess what? Then the sons are free. Now, Jesus is taking another opportunity to teach Peter and the guys about the nature of spiritual matters and discernment, this is important. Jesus says, this is the way of things. Kings don't tax their sons. The sons don't get taxed, they're, they're exempt. And what's in mind here is Peter just had said back in Matthew 15, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am, who did Peter say? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. He knows this, this is why he's talking to him. So if the God of the universe, the father has a son, is he going to be tax exempt in his own temple? The answer is yes. So sons are free. That's the point. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm the son of God. I'm, I don't have to pay this tax. You know that, right, Peter? Right. It's my, temp- my father's temple, right? This is my father's house. He goes over and flips over things, right? We This is his father's house, right? <clears throat> and so if that's the case, why would Jesus pay the tax? If he has the right, if he's exempt from paying the tax, why would he pay the tax? I'm not paying no tax. What does Jesus say there? Verse 27. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me. And for yourself. So we need to go down to, like, Bennington, I'm kidding, <laughs> before tax day and get this taken care of. No. Listen, although Jesus was exempt, although he had the full right to not be taxed, he goes ahead and pays the tax anyways. Why? As to not cause offense to them. And the idea there is unnecessary offense. Unnecessary offense. I don't want to unnecessarily offend them. And that implies that there are things that are necessary offenses. And I want it to be super clear to them what are the necessary offenses versus the unnecessary offenses. Make sense? In other words, if Jesus gets in a squabble about taxes, what about the gospel? If Jesus gets in a squabble with someone that is in a periphery discussion when they don't know the Lord, what's going to happen? The waters of salvation are going to get muddied. And this is wisdom. And I think right here we have a lot of wisdom to gain from the Lord in our discernment, in being discerning on how and when we choose to be offensive to nonbelievers and I have to grow in this, we all do. And so I think as we look at this in closing, as children of the light, we're to be discerning, we're to avoid being unnecessarily defensive, meaning I think we're people who pay our taxes. But, you know, X, Y, and Z, listen, we pay our taxes. Peripheral. We're to abide by the laws of the land and submit to authority and to be good citizens and representatives of Jesus, even at the expense of our own rights at times. Many of us struggled with this through COVID, right? And hopefully, those who chose to not follow it had good reasons for doing that, which I do and did. But this is important that we live this way because there are things that are necessarily offensive. You don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. This is why I hardly ever preach on politics. And people get mad at me. Why aren't you pounding political talking points from the pulpit? Because it's an unnecessary offense. It's unnecessary. You go, but there's issues. I go, I know when we get to the issues, I'll preach on the issues. You've heard me talk about tons of things from the pulpit that are offensive because they're necessary to talk about. You need to know that a man is a man and a woman is a woman because it reflects who God created us to be, and all these things. It matters. These things are are, are lies being perpetuated, and, and you know. So yeah, yes, I do get into those things. But I think in individual conversations, we need to be wise with the people we're talking to because we can debate evolution and, and, and have all these things and yet forget to talk to them about Jesus. Do they know who Christ is? And so sometimes we need to go, boy, I am, I've got five things to say about this one issue that they're obviously wrong on, you know. <laughs> and you just need to go, it's not what matters in the moment. What about the Lord? What about salvation? I'm not saying we dismiss these things. There might be a timing for those conversations. But being discerning and saying, has not to offend, we'll just, we'll let this go by the wayside. And that does not mean we give and sin and call people by their pronouns and, and perpetuate a lie. Don't think I'm saying that, no. What I am saying is that we don't get into the rabbit hole of all this kind of stuff when the main thing is we want them to come to Christ. So to be mindful and wise and discerning with the people that are in front of us. Now, I'm obviously going to be preaching to all of you. I'm going to offend many people. I'm not trying to be, but there's things I don't say. Obviously, I just shared some things about politics that I would say to an individual because we're having a conversation in a relationship and there's a point. But being mindful of their of where they are with the Lord and their understanding of Him, and do they know Him? And what's gonna detract from all that? We don't want to win them to a political position without having a change of heart. See, the, all those things, if people are, are, are one to Christ, you have Christ in their heart, and what do you think happens with all these issues over time? They change not to a democrat perspective or a republican perspective or an independent perspective but to a kingdom perspective and that's what we long for to be lined up in our theology and our life and our thinking and our politics with the king amen so this is important because there are things that are necessarily offensive the gospel is necessarily offensive it's foolishness to the Gentiles. It is a stumbling block to the Jews. Or am I got that backwards on? Know. You know, it's offensive. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation. These are things we don't back away from, they are necessary offenses. The gospel, as I've shared with you again, and we're almost done, it tells us we're sinners. That's offensive. It means your lifestyle, no matter what your choice is, is dead, and it's wrong. And we must repent and turn to God to be saved from that. That's like, I don't know, does that, does that seem offensive to anybody? Oh, but I was a good person, I've been married for this long, and I've done, you know, I've raised kids, and I. yeah, I know, but you're dead. And you're dead in your sins. Like people don't want to hear that, right? So there's necessary offenses. And even in that, being wise on how you communicate that. Not that we shroud the gospel, there are necessary offenses. So that matters. So there are things that we hold fast to. And I'm just gonna, for your references, just Romans chapter 1, 16, 17, 1 Corinthians 1. 22 through 25 speaks about these things, about the gospel. But we can major on the minors and minor on the majors. May God give you wisdom. Because there's a world out there that needs Jesus. We want to preach him. Think about Jesus and and his political affiliations. When he was ever asked for political advice and questions and all that stuff. Especially going into the election stuff. How did Jesus handle it? I'm not going to tell you. Go go read it. Go look at Jesus. How did he handle politics? How did he handle Herod? How did, he was just obsessed with his father. That's the kingdom he was, he was a part of. I'm not saying these things don't matter, but they're minors compared to the major. The gospel changes people's hearts. Jesus changes people's hearts that's what we want to have pray towards that preach towards that live towards that and yeah there are times when we make stands say no that is wrong but be wise in that so just as jesus did we should do amen Amen. kingdom-minded people so jesus commands peter says hey Go down, go fishing with a hook. I know you fish by nets, but go fish with a hook, and then I'm going to pay your taxes. A shekel, half for you, half for me, will be good. I like what Spurgeon says about this. He says, uh, thus the great son pays the tax levied for his father's house, but he exercises his royal prerogative in the act and takes a shekel out of the royal treasury. As a man, he pays, but first as God, he causes the fish to bring in the shekel in its mouth. (laughs) (laughs) I love that the Lord's like I'll pay fish (laughs) come here I don't have to but here's the fun right also I think there's also another perspective of this and we'll just close on this it's redemption Jesus doesn't owe anybody anything but he paid for Peter who did and he paid for us amen I love that We're going to stop there. Lord, we owe a tax that we could never pay, but you've paid it in full. And on top of that, you've not only paid our debt, but through faith in your son, you've made us sons and daughters. You've adopted us into your house and we get your inheritance. We have everything in the kingdom. It's all in you. What love you have lavished upon us. Thank you so much. Oh Lord, help us to see beyond the pain of the cross and to embrace it for our lives this day. And just look into your heart and your marvelous kindness towards us with joy and expectation about the glory to come. May you be honored by how we live. And Lord, give us the wisdom, wisdom like this, the wisdom greater than Solomon, the wisdom of Jesus Christ as we live in this world. And it's in your name we pray, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week, amen.